0: Welcome back to the Black Letter Podcast. We set out to create an entertaining and exciting podcast about law and business, and I think we've done it. Black Letter, the name, comes from the Gothic typeset that was originally used in the Gutenberg Press. Over time, Black Letter became the only font that English law books were printed in. Everything else was printed in regular type. It made it harder for kind of the common person to understand what the English law books said black letter came to represent something that was law, that was set in stone, that was sort of old and a well-settled fundamental principle of law. We're here to demystify black letter law. We're here to demystify things that happen in business and law and where those two meet. And I hope you have fun listening. And thank you to our sponsor, Alconus. Alconus is a one-stop resource for all your business and legal support services. Whether you need operations management support, website development, invention prototyping, patent searching, Alconus has it covered. Alconus understands you can't do everything yourself. Virtual operations and HR support, business formations and patent searches, are just a few of the many services they provide either directly or through their network of specialized partners. Allconus serves law firms with professional management support, virtual paralegal assistance, and coordination of outsourced services, including the difficult task of e-discovery and deposition logistics. Think of Allconus as your legal services business concierge. You focus on your core services, and they'll take care of the rest. For more information, visit www.allconus.com. That's allconus.com. And welcome back to the Black Letter Podcast. Today with me, I have J.R. Lamonico, an attorney with Dunlap, Bennett, and Ludwig. And I've got Ron Burns, a technologist, musician, composer, uh, man, of, man of all trades, um, I guess. And we're here to talk a little bit about um, how the music industry has changed, how technology has changed the music industry, and some developments, I think, starting off with or kind of centering around the the disappearance of or the end of iTunes, which I, I thought was a really interesting thing that, that we were chatting about a couple minutes before we started the show. So um, instead of starting with the end of iTunes, let's start with Ron. Tell us uh, just a little bit about yourself because I introduced you as a technologist, musician, the guy who wrote uh, jingles for, that you still see on TV today, that you wrote in the 90s and they just aren't doing new content and are still listening to your stuff. Uh, what, what's one that we would know?
1: Uh, I did a bunch of stuff that was on Seinfeld. Okay. And that's a good place to start because the hit culture that created royalties in the early days of my career is still a thing that's making me money now. Yeah. Seinfeld's still in syndication everywhere, and which is odd.
0: Well, so, so it's uh, interesting. So, you said to me earlier that we've changed from a hit culture back in the 80s and 90s, even early 2000s. You could have one big album, Frampton, or or Seinfeld or something like that, one big hit. Backstreet Boys, you said, was the last million album. Million selling album, million 1999. Million selling album, yeah. 1999, 20, 20 years ago, Yeah. Uh, when I started practicing law, oddly and terrifyingly. Um, but uh, today, so something interesting, um, my daughter, who's 14, is watching Seinfeld. She just finished rewatching all of Friends um, and The Office. And it's not just her. It's her whole peer group, apparently. There's some kind of massive resurgence that has to, I can only say, be supported by or allowed by technology. It's not DVDs. It's streaming. It's the culture. It's all over the place. Dunder Mifflin mugs. Yeah. Um, Friends, for God's sake. It wasn't a great program when it was on, and everybody well, I would it. argue
1: Friends was the last big hit sitcom.
0: Okay. All right. So, so tell me about that.
1: So what, so I, what's interesting about what we're talking about is underpinning this is a series of disintermediations by technology. Okay. The technology's relationship to art. And I think the law is way behind on this in multiple segments. So if you think about what technology did for our culture in the 70s and, and even in the 80s, we had three television channels. The news was the same on all three, Right. very different than today. Uh, we had hit TV shows, Archie and Bunker and was a, was a huge star, right? You had hit records like the Beatles were giants. Giant Probably arguable stars. that
0: Archie Bunker's a star, maybe, but well, the show was. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. <laughs> the show was, the show well was not, big. But he himself, he himself was a, perhaps the epitome of misogyny. Of course,
1: yeah, um, and that's why they made fun of him, right? So, so what's interesting about that? There was there was royalty systems put into place and laws put into place that could manage that. So, from a music perspective, we understood synchronous license, mm-hmm. the ability to have airplay royalties with BMI and ASCAP being to independent sort of compose our own entities that right. manage those royalties. And more importantly, there were synchronization royalties from the sale of physical things like CDs.
0: Mechanical license. Mechanical
1: license. Yeah, okay. So those things made people rich. And by the way, this whole, I think this pattern is happening in TV, it's happening in movies. You see people struggling to figure out, well, what's the difference between Netflix and Hulu and all these, you know, even the big Fios of the right.
0: world, they're trying to have come out with streaming services to match the streaming. Yeah, Disney, I think, is coming up with its own streaming service and not selling its content yeah. they anymore. They actually just took
2: over parts of Hulu again, too, and they're starting to try and us everything under the Disney Plus streaming service, and that's yeah. just the new model that...
0: So you're going to have to have a subscription to... I know we have subscriptions to Prime, Netflix, and Hulu, and HBO Go. I have so many subscriptions. So
1: you're co- competing for apps now. Yeah. Right? So. But what's what's interesting, what I saw in my career was these waves of specific, this intermediation in the music space. So um, I was doing production music, which is sort of clip art music. It was produced by a company called Firstcom that got acquired by Universal Music, a huge company. And Universal has record companies that produce people like Britney Spears and others. So when Napster came along, all these acquisitions of the production music businesses happened in the mid-90s, right? So I got massive distribution. It was tremendous for my career. But then Napster came along completely destroyed the music business in about a year. Okay, And if you think about how they did it, it was pretty interesting. They, they went to the massive buyers of music, mm-hmm. teenagers and said, guess what? Music should be free.
0: Now, Napster got shut down by the law. Napster right? got crushed. Yeah, And I would say it got disintermediated by- Lime, I- Do you remember LimeWire? LimeWire. So that was one that I think I may or may not have used. To the extent it was legal, I used it. If it wasn't, then I certainly didn't. But I would argue if you paying $5 a month for a
1: Spotify subscription to get every piece of music ever written for free, and you've taken the royalties for composers from what this to any little spec, right. you're stealing from composers anyway.
0: But it's legalized stealing, right? Because composers it, it, are subscribing to that model. It's
1: legal, but not necessarily fair. Okay. So tell me about that. And so, and by the way, I, I I promised your colleague I wouldn't mention anything political today, but I, I have to point out that sure. in, in the Mueller report- uh-huh. There weren't laws sufficient to take stolen emails and identify that of something of value. So here you have a whole whole cyber scandal involving Russia. But the laws just weren't clear enough to make a clear choice on on that. I think similarly, when it comes to intellectual property and art, the laws have not kept up with the waves of technology. Because just in 15, 20 years, we've seen
0: Napster go to iTunes, and iTunes get destroyed by Spotify. So, so uh, uh, just k- slight counter argument. So, I, I think the copyright law is strong enough. The challenge you have really is how licensing and contracting that art has evolved. Not so much that the copyright law, because the United States, relative to other countries, where I've I've tried cases in the UK, I've dealt with cases in Canada. We have the some of the probably the strongest copyright laws in the world. Right. We have statutory damages. Uh, we have. Um, liability that's detached from actual actions. You essentially have uh, no mens rea, no intent required. If you infringe a copyright, you owe the money and there's statutory damages attached, attorney's fees, all these things that no other country has. They all rely on the Bern convention, whatever, this, this amorphous treaty, right? But um, I think what you're talking about really is how the music industry and technology has started contracting away those rights, right? I don't know that That it's our statutory laws that have disenfranchised artists. I'm just making the counter. You're making
1: a valid point, but what about the 5,000 kids tonight who are going to take a song from an artist and upload it on their YouTube channel? And they're violating a copyright, but there's no damages there because the kid is not really getting value from that. So the, the entire model is upside down and backwards for us to value art as a society. The number of channels for distribution have multiplied exponentially and, so the and enforcement, at the same time, though, is you pretty
0: technology. They use technology to enforce that pretty aggressively now, if it's the right artist. Now, I will agree with you. If you're a small artist and you can't afford to enforce it, and you're not part of a label, you're a loser. You're getting rocked.
1: I'm not even talking about the small artist. I'm talking about a 13-year-old kid mm-hmm. who likes this new song that came out right. and uploads it to YouTube for their friends. And They just distributed something that's not theirs. But
0: YouTube's taking it down pretty, or at least they have been taking it down. I don't know if-
1: Not for a 13-year-old kid.
2: So there's actually, and there are certainly some issues mm-hmm. right now with YouTube's takedown policy. There are actually people who are um, getting takedown notices for their own voice as a copyright infringement from somebody else, and it's right. just because of the way the technology is detecting it. But I think Ron, you know, you bring up a great point in that the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which does, you know, is the latest legislation that we have that covers all this, is based in the millennium two thousand. And so, just on the exponential rate of growth that we've seen and the way technology has changed. Even though we do, and because I would agree, Tom, that we have some of the most comprehensive and you know strongest copyright protections available in the world, um, but at the same time, keeping up with how technology has changed under what is you know an ancient statute as far as the growth rate for technology makes it you know certainly really difficult, I think, to navigate that. So, yeah. so I'll ask you something. Sort of, this is probably controversial.
0: I, I bring it up tentatively, and and maybe I shouldn't, but. Um, In 2000, I think it was nine. Do you remember the film The Hurt Locker? I do, yeah. So they were a client of mine, and I filed the first series of copyright lawsuits in the United States on behalf of The Hurt Locker. I sued 25,000 people at once who were uh, downloading that film, partly because Nicholas, the producer of the film, uh, was the lowest box office of any Academy Award-winning film in the history of of art, Mm. uh, based on the prorated dollar. I think the studio might not have even made money. And so the only way to recover economic value is to actually file suit against people who are watching it for free. And just us, our law firm, was that we were able to find 25,000 downloaders in our first lawsuit over this and collect money from that. Um, so that but, but there was a legal mechanism for the production studio. And of course, that's the art unit that's controlling the back end to the actors, the back end to the, whoever created the film, the creators of the film. And I, I think at the time, it was mislabeled trolling, because that's not trolling. That's the owner of the film, the maker of the film, the people who created it recovering from people who are literally stealing it. Yeah. Again, you're probably on my side on I this I am one. on your side this But this um, you But know, there was a lot of controversy around that. A lot of people said, we have the right to view art and to access art. So, so talk about that from your perspective. Maybe actually I'm preaching to the choir.
1: No, you, you definitely are. So the laws may be good. And you might be able to recover bits and bobs from 25,000 different people. But um, the broader cultural point is the musicians of the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. were not 10 million times better than the musicians of today. Well, I think
0: that's pretty clear. Yeah, so, so, that. so, the,
1: so the value of art has been diminished by the exponential explosion of distribution. Okay. And that, that's maybe not a legal question. It may be a technology question. I think this problem gets solved by some sort of technology platform that comes out and enables the creators of art to be the direct distributors. To some extent, it's like that now, but there's still that middleman. Spotify's a middleman. YouTube's a middleman. Apple, streaming Apple Music, which is replacing iTunes, is is a middleman. But until the the, the day arrives that I can compose the music on my computer and distribute it in a way where I I have
0: brand equity with a Spotify, that's the only way I think it changes. So so, So right now, if I compose something, if I'm a musician, I can distribute it. I can put it out on YouTube CD or- Baby. Right. Yeah, but
1: monetizing ads on YouTube mm-hmm. is not the same thing as Peter Frampton selling 40 million copies of Frampton right. comes alive in 1977. By the way, that's my watermark. I want to sell 40 million copies of something.
0: But even so, Frampton had a distribution company, he had an agent. I mean, he had mechanisms back then that have been replaced- And he
1: had terrible contracts, and he still made more money than the artists of today. Right. So the question is, does the art that's being made today become lesser because the artist can't be compensated?
0: I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think that that art will always uh, evolve to its highest form regardless of how much the artist is being compensated, right? Because artists aren't, I mean, you say they aren't in it for the money. They're To some degree, every artist is in it for some money. Sure. And some of them are in it just for the money. But, but true art, right, she, to some degree, I guess this is a philosophical questions should be sort of disassociated from the, the cash value of it, right? Is that our, our I, I, don't, I don't necessarily disagree. You got to
1: eat too, man.
0: I'm straight up, I'm a straight up capitalist, anyway, <laughs> right? So I'm just making the count, ca- I'm playing devil's advocate. Yeah. Here, as no, is no, I, I want.
1: The pure starving artist is a great thing to romanticize. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, again, I-, I Poe died in a gutter. I, I, I scan culture for where the big hits still occur, where okay. big hit culture still exists. And it takes a massive capital investment. To me, the last big hit cultural phenomenon that really caught everyone's attention, Game of Thrones. Yeah. HBO had to throw down eight seasons. I don't know how they blew the last one, but They're they had to throw down head. eight seasons to make that thing a cultural phenomenon. So when a big hit happens now, it's a big hit. Yeah. But it's still hard to do um, without the backing of some sort of corporate structure like an HBO. Okay. Um, so then that, by the way, that's another interesting angle on this. Do musicians need record labels? I don't know. (laughs) We may, because the the record labels were, in the context of the the boom years, even though they were very advantageous contracts for the record side,
0: Mm -hmm. were able to create a lot more economic value for the artists back then. Thank you to our sponsor today, Dunlap, Bennett & Ludwig. Dunlap, Bennett & Ludwig solves complex business problems with smart solutions. Acting as advocates and advisors to their clients with diverse professional backgrounds from MBAs to PhDs to bankers to military officers, real world experience for real world problems. Dunlap, Bennett, and Ludwig, doing better law. To find out more, visit www.dbllawyers.com. Well, so I guess the counter argument is the, the, what is the value of a record label these days? And we say record, obviously, distribution label, whatever you want to call it. Because there's no brand equity at the end of the day in this record label or that record label to the consuming public. Right. They're, they're really agnostic to that. They don't know you know, XYZ record label from- you know... There used to be. Right, there used to be. There used to be Columbia Records. Ah, they have a lot of good artists. Right, but that, Columbia that's Records That's not a thing anymore. Yeah. I don't think my kids know who Columbia Records is. No. They have no idea. They know what Spotify is. They do, and they know what iTunes is. But to them, and so I guess this is a question really, them whether it's spotify or pandora or itunes they feel like all of the same music is on all of those things it's just which platform are you using it's it's the people that can cut through the clutter yeah so
1: i was i was amazed i've seen some i was a korean pop band i can't name the korean pop phenomenon it's interesting to me i don't like it but it's amazing to see like a billion views yeah i don't get it don't get it either but it's a thing Uh, for uh, sure but
0: but
1: how do you monetize a billion free views uh, well, that's, that's ad monetized to some degree, right? Still, though, it's
0: nothing near what that would have meant to have sold a billion singles but, so uh, in 1985. So, so counterpoint, in 1985, you couldn't have accessed a billion human beings. There were only 200 million people in the United States. Fair point. And there's no way to get that kind of distribution channel. So now you have a, as an artist, you have a billion people looking at what you're doing, right? That's sort of fantastic in its own way. And so the argument would be there's there's less value per person in each view because they're accessing so much more content. Right. People in India or people in Russia or China, maybe not China, but people who have free internet, but people who can access this content never would have seen Frampton, never. And they probably still haven't. Um, yeah, I mean, the plus
1: side of the distribution system being arrayed the way it is now.
0: And I'm not a Frampton fan.
1: You should go back and listen to Frampton Comes Alive. <laughs> uh, anyway, I don't know how we got to Peter Frampton today. What? It was oh, you.
0: It was a classic, classic. Yeah. Yeah. It. I feel like that was you. I
1: think it was your colleague
2: Amy who was a big Peter Frampton. So Frampton still makes me um, cry So when that album comes on.
1: So we talked a little bit of the long tail phenomenon, right? So let's talk about some of the advantages technology offers. Which is okay. just now you can search. The, the, the idea of the long tail is it was a, a concept brought out by Wired magazine when the internet started blowing up music in the early 2000s. They said, well, the big hits aren't going to be here anymore. But if you like heavy metal punk polka music, you're going to find nine bands
0: that right, do like that. Right like that um Sheldon Come Along grab. what is that song? That was the it was the Apple or Microsoft, it was one of the is in one of their television commercials and now it was like a number one Billboard hit and it's wow. and it's electric folk polka right. music or something like that. Right. It's a, a British guy you never would have expected.
1: Um, I was making up something funny to be stupid, but apparently, no, no, it's no. pretty real. It's, it's uh, Sheldon something. Anyway. I'll have to, yeah. but the point is, so now an obscure artist at least has access to this distribution. Yeah. that They would have never gotten a record contract in the 70s or 80s, and
0: now they can upload to YouTube, and who knows? Maybe it goes viral. Well, what about selling beats? So is there value in a beat? I mean, people are well, buying beats and selling beats, and it's a huge deal, and we've done some not contracts. Not just beats, but sounds. Right. The
1: whole electronic music space, you have people sampling. The sounds of other people and putting it in their songs—that's a whole another legal, you know, yeah. road we can go down. That's where you say, "I'm sampling a, a bit of Stevie Wonder's bridge be part of a rap song." That was a crazy legal time in the in the early '90s and mid '90s, where there was no legal mechanism to manage that. At oh, all. and
0: even today, it's sort of amorphous because I, I think the argument that uh Pharrell and and was it Robin Thick Yep, um, blurred lines. Blurred lines song. So. Every lawyer I know, I'm on the ABA Copyright Committee, the American Bar Association's Copyright Committee, and every most lawyers I talked to said, well, there's no way they should lose that song from a legal standpoint, but they lost the jury trial. Um, and so- What year was that? Gosh, that was like four or five years ago. It yeah. probably 2014, 2013, read about, 14. Yeah, 13, 14 was all law school. Yeah. So um, sort of an interesting challenge that- uh, you think you have legal standards, like the lay people think, oh, well, they decided that uh, uh, Robin Thicke and Pharrell sampled, uh, who was it, Stevie Wonder? No, Stevie Wonder. Mm. The blurred lines. They sampled an artist, Marvin Gaye. Marvin Gaye, there you it's go. That's Marvin right. Gaye. And uh, every copyright attorney on earth said, this doesn't even, they're not even remotely close. It's not infringement. They don't owe any royalties. And yet there's a jury verdict sitting there against them when mm. the legal results should have been the opposite. So that's, that's another challenge, is that. While you may have laws and standards they are applied unevenly across the United States. That's always going to be the case, too. Mm, interesting. So, for whatever it's worth, I don't know if you've heard of that case. I, I have not heard. It's worth reading about because it's sort of interesting. All of this is the push and pull of technology and
1: art, right? I, I, you know, I, I had a three- or four-year period where I was able to leverage technology in a really interesting way around sampling in this production music space. So, okay. in the early, did you
0: do the Seinfeld? Like,
1: no, 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 no. It was okay. Just some other incidental music in there. Okay. But um, the early '90s, there was a lot of production music that was being done with orchestras, mm-hmm. big, bold, epic. You know, it was sort of a clip Game art. of Thronesy. Games of Thronesy, but you'd have dramatic music, you'd have action music, and no full D. scores. And so the companies would pay a lot of money because you're going to hire a whole orchestra to do this. Yeah. And so the per cut production fee was substantial. So I was one of the early people that figured out I could take samples. And get very realistic orchestral sounds to the point where it sounded like a real orchestra. Right. And I would do it in like two hours on Much a
0: computer and get and a giant fee for orchestra. the whole orchestra. Right. And you know, they, and the, we the company. I always there. think of Star Wars when you say things like that because they were completely orchestral and scored, yeah. and um, just the massive amounts of human beings that went into every scene there in terms of the music created.
1: Well, and this is still a thing now in movies. You can see some movies that sound like a real orchestra today,
0: and it's all digital.
1: Yeah, And it's only the biggest and, and most highly budgeted films that are still so using So do you think that
0: disenfranchises artists? I disenfranchised the whole orchestra. <laughs> so,
1: um, I picked the oboe player first because I never liked the oboe.
0: Kind of a weird <laughs> instrument.
1: Uh, but yeah, so there's an example of I was able to leverage technology for, for a minute mm-hmm. until the company started figuring out what a bunch of us guys were doing. Wait a minute. I'm paying you $10,000 a track for your musicians and you're, and you, you're doing 10 of them. And you got them done in three days and send it back to I me? Mean, how do you even do that?
0: Yeah. Right? So you, and then they want to acquire the technology, own it, and control it. And that's what's happened with content and streaming as well, right? Well,
1: in that, in that case, you still need a musician between the technology and the publisher to make something musical. Right. But you're, you're making a good point. If a composer sits there and buys loops, drum loops, mm-hmm. and buys sampled orchestra stuff, are they really just copying and pasting together art now? Right. They're not necessarily creating art. So, they're, they're well, so about the
0: standard in the US, the copyright standard, if it is, is whether or not it's transformative. That's sort of, I mean, to me, that's a subjective thing. But if you take art and you've transformed it into something new, technically, you've, under copyright law, I don't know whether under Well, the sample arts, libraries have very
1: clear license agreements, right? Okay. Where they say, you can use this in any musical composition you want. You have the rights to do that. You can't resell it as another loop. Okay. So I couldn't put a little bit of a guitar and a nice drum beat and resell it as a funk loop that Gosh, someone else could use. But so, you could put it into but a I could put composition. it into a film or a record or what have you. Interesting. So that's a really interesting space to look at the legal so niches.
0: So for, for musicians today, um, uh, production companies, what's the single most important piece of advice that you would have looking forward? Well, looking backwards into history and looking forwards into what might happen, what it, where do you think this for, is going? For on? musicians? For musicians. Learn. How can they protect themselves?
1: Learn to play live. OK. Because that's how everyone's making their money now. If, they, if you look at the net worth of the really wealthy. They're the people uh, who tour. People who tour. And they do and and profitable tours. You know, the old rock bands would burn their budgets down to go on tour. They would lose money on tours to sell records. Now it's the opposite. Artists Interesting.
0: get downloads to drive traffic to, to uh, live venues. So plan to work hard for your money You're as a musician. Work hard today for your money. live tours are tough. And now, what about for production companies? What do you think is the next technology hop or, or legal challenge or legal thing that they should plan for?
1: You mean music production company? Yeah. There?
0: Music production company, yeah.
1: Well, I, th- I think I'd like to see musicians and music production companies unite a little bit more on some of the issues around okay. publishing. So that we can have a stronger voice because although you make a good point that the copyright laws have been modernized to some extent there's a real uh, unfairness in, in the artist's view sure you used to be able to make a lot more money and now you know apple's got
0: a trillion dollar market cap well the challenge is going to be nobody's ever going to be able to buy apple and take that control back right well
1: i, I actually think it's an interesting thing that happened yesterday that itunes is getting shut down. So you think that's? Challenged? I think that's a sign. I think that's a sign that Spotify is challenged. Yeah. Apple.
0: Yeah. So so let's you know, talk about Apple. Apple. Can, be,
1: Apple can be dominant in every space, but not number one in every space. So what and is it? I put my technologist hat on, but yeah, you know they they have uh, in technology there are two kinds of um, mentalities. One is a closed system, mm-hmm. and one is an open system, right? And Apple and I'm an Apple guy. I, lo- I love all of their products, but their operating system is closed down. You know their yep. their, their OS for You know, the company I'm with now develops apps for the iTunes store, and they have very stringent rules on what you can and can't do there, whereas Android's much more open. Yep. Right? So I think you're going to see the open technology companies versus the closed technology companies, and that's going to be a really interesting battle to watch.
0: So in terms of what happened with iTunes, so, it, so what I understand is as of September, iTunes is gone. Gone. So what, what happened to all of the iTunes purchases everybody's made, all the songs we've bought?
1: They'll, I believe they'll still be locally on your machine, but now they're replacing iTunes with four apps, This is my understanding. Okay. Uh, a, a podcast app, mm-hmm. um, a music streaming app, uh, I forget what the other ones are, but they're essentially trying to morph themselves into becoming Spotify. Okay. Which, again, is devaluing music, because at least in the case of iTunes, you were paying something for something tangible, a download. Right, yeah. Now you're paying, you're, you're, Apple's adopting Spotify's model and saying, pay us a subscription per month, and you can stream all the music that's ever been made by mankind.
0: Right. and all So the, that's another so all devaluing. All of the films, all of the movies. So you're not going to buy movies on the iTunes store anymore.
1: I, that's correct. That, that's the other one that's going to be a, a special... TV, uh,
0: Apple TV and Apple Yeah, film. Apple TV's already popped up. It's already a thing on, on, on the uh, Apple Store. So, so I believe what's happened to music mm-hmm. is going to happen
1: to film. It's just happening more slowly. But it's going to happen to film and TV shows. I think about Star Trek. CBS, I think, had to create a new Star Trek that was only viewable on their app. Did you catch that one? No.
0: Uh-uh. Is this the, the Orville, right? But that's on TV. That's not Star Trek. That's a, a spoof of Star Trek. Okay. That's a spoof of Star Trek. Yeah.
1: There's a new Star Trek. I forget the name of it, but I, I love Star Trek. Well,
0: geeky Star Wars Star Trek, sure. right?
1: Sure. Yeah. And there's an example of a legacy company, CBS, being so overrun by the streaming services yeah. that the one thing that they had was the jewel of the content. They own Star Trek, right? So they said, okay we're going to roll Star Trek out on our app to push our app. Wow, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. So those
1: are the kinds of things you start to see. Yeah. To me,
0: there's... So that means, though, that content is driving technology in some ways then. So before we're saying technology is driving content, but that in that case, I also see it with Game of Thrones, like all of the app ads are Game of Thrones, like play the Game of Thrones game or do... I think even on DirecTV now, there's a channel. I've never clicked on what it is, but it's like, Game of Thrones quiz or challenge or something like that. I'm not sure what it is. I haven't clicked on it. Yeah. But it's uh, in DirecTV, there's a whole channel that's a Game of Thrones challenge. That's interesting. I yeah, I, that. it is. Yeah. I, I probably should have clicked on it before the show today. But.
1: but I'm arguing that CBS was trying to get their streaming platform out.
0: Right. They're trying it's to a, get to value to out of it.
1: To be something akin to yeah, Netflix or Hulu never, are not there yet. So they had to use specialized,
0: treasured content by our society to make that valuable. So do you think everyone, anyone's going to come along and aggregate all of these platforms again? It seems like they're disaggregating now. It seems like Netflix was the leader, and then you had Hulu come along, and you had Apple come along and try to compete. And now, and I understand Netflix is this much bigger than everybody, but now it sounds like Disney's going to start keeping their content. Maybe AMC is going to start keeping their content, their Walking Dead, Jewel. Their, you know, each, each content provider is going to start trying to keep their content and have their stream through their app. Are we well, going to have to have 100 apps 10 years from now?
1: I, I'm going to tell you a secret. Yeah. Very few lawyers know this. Okay. Skynet has already done it. <laughs> Skynet in this case is Amazon.com. Okay. Hulu, mm-hmm. Netflix, iTunes. Every streaming service runs on Amazon, AWS. AWS. The king and the winner of all of these things has been AWS. AWS, right? yeah. They've aggregated the platforms. So every time you pay Hulu or you play, pay Netflix, you paying, you're AWS. paying AWS. AWS. is
0: making money. So Amazon Prime is just sitting back, smiling, going, "So that's you got to you... half their shit is sitting in Loudoun County, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> on the on the toll road. Uh,
1: and that's why Jeff Bezos is now the richest man in the world. And that's it's why so Amazon too is going to be sitting in Northern
0: Virginia, Yeah. probably. Right. Yeah. How did they? How did you guys beat out Brooklyn? I don't know. Uh, well, because didn't didn't Brooklyn or Queens? No,
2: it was Queens. It was it was Queens. 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 Are they splitting it? They're going to be doing summer ending up in Alexandria. No, they chased uh, Queens, out.
0: Alexandria, oh. or Soria Cortez. AOC. Led, yeah, led a huge protest, and they chased Amazon out. And wow. so good I don't for that. Northern Virginia was was notably very quiet and yeah. like no no we're good can <laughs> still bring really high paying jobs to our region. Um, so I think that was perhaps a, a challenging decision for her. I I don't. But, but I'm glad I don't live there because I feel like it's a pretty poor decision. Yeah. But. Where, where the law gets really
1: weird around art, music, film, and, and streaming right. is if you look at it as data. Okay. Instead of looking at it as art, now, now look at it as data that's used to track your behaviors. What do you That's watch? where you get really crazy. You know, I'm, I, I'm on Facebook. Yeah. And I'll go out on Google and I'll search a new guitar that I want to buy. Five minutes later on Facebook, oh, yeah. I'm streaming, streaming through.
0: It follows I, you. Yeah. No.
1: All my thoughts and
0: feelings are in this <laughs> yeah. thing. So, and, Men's and, shoes, I, you know, right? same weird thing. I was like, I need yep. some shoes. And now I suddenly And, and by the way, I hate it. it, but
1: I kind of like it. It's giving me, it's giving me the stuff I like. Yeah, back. It's, it's so it's
0: actually pretty accurate. Privacy is gone. Are we okay with that? That's the title you? of your next uh, podcast. You're exchanging <laughs> privacy for convenience. All right. Well, thanks uh, for joining us, Ron and Jr. Thank you, guys. Of course. Um, Our next podcast or a podcast in the future is What Happened to My Data and My Privacy? Maybe we'll we'll figure out uh, that in the future. But thank you again, gentlemen, both of you, for joining us on Black Letter Podcast, and we'll see you next time. After four years of exciting growth, recently named Washington Business Journal's fastest-growing real estate brokerage and fifth-fastest-growing company overall, Pearson Smith Realty continues to build upon their vision of building an agent-focused brokerage dedicated to providing the ultimate client experience. Servicing the DMV in West Virginia, if you're an agent looking to work in a collaborative atmosphere while taking advantage of the industry's best compensation packages with unlimited value propositions, or if you're a buyer or seller looking for an agent that will go above and beyond to find your dream home, visit www pearsonsmithrealty.com today or call 571-386-1075 That's all for today's episode of Black Letter. Thanks again for listening. Join us next time when we talk about more Black Letter issues in creative ways. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Google Play so you never miss an episode. And to catch us on video, check out our website at blackletterstudios.com.